All right, if you would, turn to Jeremiah 29. <clears throat> it's, a, uh, it's a chapter that has a verse that uh, many of us may know, and if you have it tattooed somewhere in your personage, um, I, I don't know how you're going to feel after this sermon. Um, and so I, I hope maybe that you don't, but if you do, it's in context uh, and not out. And so... <laughs> Um, anyway, so uh, there are some there's some tough things in here, but there's also some glorious things in here, and we want to rightly make sure that we're placing our affections. And let me say this: no sermon is the end of the discussion, right? It's the beginning of the discussion. And so there's many things that I may say today that may cause you to pause and kind of clip out of the sermon, which will continue continue as I always do as a train downhill in linear fashion. And uh, there may be some things that you miss that you go, wait a minute, I, I can't believe he just said that. And so you're mad about that for a second and you miss maybe how I brought it around or some other things. Remember, this is an ongoing dialogue. This is, I'm not the end of the authority on Jeremiah 29. God and his Holy Spirit is. And so uh, we're trying to be more biblical. We're just trying to get to a place where we live out what will truly glorify God. And so if you would uh, join me in being gracious in that. Um, as I will try to be careful of my comments not to say things outside the realm of what Scripture has to say to us. Um, so, having said all that, I do want to catch us up just for a second so you recognize there was a method in the madness of choosing the various passages for this sermon series. Uh, the sermon series being how we were designed to live. There, there's a way in which God has made us that we see within the Genesis 1 and 2 story that, that teaches us that work is not a result of the fall. And for us to think that work is a result of the fall is to miss this huge element of how we were designed and this huge thing that the Lord has given to us to glorify him and to actually be a blessing to where we live uh, and the people that we live around. And so for us to have a low view of work is to actually be less than Christian, to be less than what God designed us to be. Equally, the Lord gave us the Sabbath as a creation ordinance, not as law, not as a Jewish analog, not some sort of Jewish thing. It was how we were all created to do. And, and we've, we've talked for a few weeks, and some of you have kind of pushed against not wanting to take a day off for reasons I can't explain. And uh, I understand we do. We get so tangled up in what, we, what we're not supposed to do on that day that we don't uh, uh, see the richness of what we are called to do so that we wouldn't even worry about what we're not supposed to do. Like if you so engage in the things that the Lord said to do that would actually cause the Sabbath to be a blessing to you, you, you wouldn't get so tangled up in all that other stuff. And even God didn't give us a lot of things that we shouldn't do on the Sabbath. It was actually the Pharisees who came up with like 900 other laws. You know, they were the originators of the Fitbit, by the way. I didn't know if you knew that. I mean, they're the ones who were counting steps long before it was even in vogue to do so. And so, so you're not a Pharisee if you own a Fitbit. I didn't say that. Don't charge me with that. All right, so we got that off the deck. So, uh, so they are the ones who made it obnoxious and noxious instead of a day that's a gift for us to actually enjoy one another and to be able to enjoy the things that are good, right? So Genesis 1 and 2 hopefully was helpful in us seeing that those, where those things began and that it is good for the creator-creature distinction. It is good for us to have a day to, to worship, and it's good for us to work well the other six days heartily as unto the Lord, right? 
And then the fall comes, and it's important for us to recognize what impact does the fall have on this this way in which we're designed, right? It doesn't take it away from us, because we saw in Ecclesiastes, we looked at chapters 2 and 3, that work can still be fruitful. It can still be, even though it is under the sun in a fallen world, the way that it matters is that you do it heartily unto the Lord. That's a resounding bell. We even hear that in the New Testament. We'll see that when we go to get to Colossians in two weeks. But if you recognize that it is God who is sovereign, who's placed you where you are, given you the gifts that he has given you, then your work can matter, right? But if you seek to only serve yourself, then what you have amassed will be gone in a generation. It won't matter. Somebody will do with it whatever they want, and they'll put their print on it, and they'll make it theirs, and you won't be remembered. And you may say, well, how do you explain John D. Rockefeller? Uh, explain that he's in the grave and it didn't matter, right? I mean, a little bit more didn't save him from the grave, did it? He lies dead, unable to continue his legacy. Others have to do it in his name. In fact, one of his legacies, by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, is a, uh, he had a significant impact on liberal Christianity. He made sure that there was a church there in the town where he was wanted to be most famous, where one of the worst preachers in all of history could week in and week out challenge the truth of the Bible. That's John D. Rockefeller's legacy. And so, so we see that the fall did not take away our ability to work as pleasing unto the Lord. And then we saw that the Sabbath was part of the law, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, and that the reason it's part of the law is because it was part of God's creation. It's how he did what he did and we're made in his image, and that hasn't changed. It also was because he set us free. It's part of redemption. And if you remember, the Sabbath serves as the ethic that teaches us to love God and love our neighbor. It's the Janus and the Ten Commandments. It looks forward and back to both of those realities. And so the Sabbath is pedagogical. It teaches the, us who we are. It teaches the world who we are. It's got a, it has this evangelistic possibility to it, right? It shows the world that we are not under the tyranny of Pharaoh. And it's something that we can invite people into to be a blessing to them. Not something that we use to withdraw from the world. Hey, I don't eat out on the Sabbath. That makes me a strong Christian. No, it doesn't. If you don't eat out on the Sabbath, you better be evangelizing the other six days of the week to invite people into that Sabbath, right? Every time you go out. Otherwise, you're just building up your own little kingdom. And then we saw that, that the fall did not take away the Sabbath in Toto because Isaiah 58 said, listen, you guys are trying to treat me like a cosmic candy machine. Sabbath was intended to actually be a blessing to all those around you, including you. Don't make up all these other religious nonsense. I've given you what you need to live in this world. Now use it to my glory and your good. So that brings us to Jeremiah 29. And one of the places that we see, we, so, so the fall had, doesn't take away who we are, that creation mandate, that, that design. But what about exile? Does, does judgment, does exile take away ultimately who we are created to be? Does it change everything? Or is how we are designed still very important regardless of where we are? That is the question before us as we look at Jeremiah 29. So I want to ask you the question, what impact should our circumstances have on our vocational calling? How we work and how we do what we do. What impact should it have? 
None. None. Because you do everything you do hardly is unto the Lord. So tell me, are there passages in the New Testament that say, if your boss treats you like trash, then you have every right to, to, to work in such a way that he doesn't prosper? Where's that passage exactly? Or I got an even better one. What if the government says that where you work has to follow certain rules, maybe about the bathroom? I don't know. Does that mean that you can't work in such a way that continues to help that place to prosper? Now, if you're talking about divine descent, we'll get to that. We're actually going to study the book of Daniel at the end of August and through up until November when it slouches home. But, but let me just tell you, the, the, some of the ways that we look at divine descent is not at all how the Bible looks at it. We, we don't have the right, given the change in circumstances, whoever's over us, to do differently than we would do if that boss were good. Because why? Ultimately, we're making a comment about the sovereignty of God. Who put that boss, this government, this situation over you? Who? And if he didn't, ah, what hope do you have? Remember, we said in Job that sovereignty is both the question and the answer to the question. He doesn't exactly tell us why we are here, right? Why we are dealing with this historical moment in the way that we're dealing with it. But we have to remember, he has brought it to bear. What's he saying to us? So we don't have the liberty to work as we choose based on how we feel about things. We are still called to work hardly as unto the Lord. And we're going to see that call here in Jeremiah. And we're definitely going to see it when we get to the book of Daniel. And I'll give you a little bit of a preview from Daniel 6. Because Daniel's somebody who's having to live under this reality. So, keep that in mind. How have you thought about how your circumstances should affect how you do what you do? And I have had to answer this question myself in the jobs that I've been in and under some of the bosses that I've been under um, and beautifully, uh, to follow the way the Lord calls us to, um, gen genuinely results in blessing of some kind. It just always does. And am I saying that God's a cosmic candy machine? No, but there's a way in which we are designed, right? Remember Psalm 128 we read this morning. Psalm 1 is, is Psalm 128 is just an echo of Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who walks in the way of the righteous. But see, we want blessing to mean safety, security, prosperity. Is that what God means? No, not always. Sometimes you get some of that, and sometimes you don't. But what you always have is his love for you. What you always have is his promises that will be fulfilled regardless of the kings that rise and fall. Don't forget what we talked about back in Advent. Remember, as we read Jesus' genealogy, Remember, the bad kings couldn't make it stick forever, and the good kings couldn't either. In fact, the good kings lasted less than the bad kings, as it turns out, oddly enough. So as we turn to this text, let's keep all that in mind. Let's look at the first seven verses. This is the, the what. This is the creation mandate in exile. And for those of you who not been with us, the creation mandate is just that Genesis 1, 26 through 31, where he says, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, and I will take care of you. If you, if you honor and glorify me, I will take care of you where you are, essentially. So let's look at the text. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemara, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. All right, so <laughs> we've heard some of this stuff before. And it's been used to say, hey, you need to go love a big city. Um, I don't think that's the point of this passage at all. I think it's to love where you are based on where the Lord has sovereignly placed you. And that's what we notice straight away is that this is a letter from whom? Who wrote this letter? The Lord. Jeremiah is right, pinning it, but it says, the Lord says. And notice that the Lord makes it possible for this letter to actually reach the exiles. They were probably taken in 597 by Nebuchadnezzar. They probably are early into the exile. He had already told them earlier in Jeremiah, you are going into exile for 70 years. How many generations is that? It's probably about three or four, given when they would have kids. Three or four generations, you will be in exile. And then comes along a false prophet named Hananiah in Jeremiah 28 who says, no, 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 no. Jeremiah is crazy. You know, he spent some time in a cistern. I mean, he's probably got a little PTSD thing going on. It's, it's been rough on him. Let me tell you, it's only going to be two years. It won't be that long. won't be that bad. Don't get comfortable. Don't get excited. You're coming back home quick. Hananiah was lying. He was a false prophet. He was not one who was sent of the Lord. In fact, he was telling them what they wanted to hear is that their suffering would be short and that their time in exile would be quick and painless overall. So there was no reason for them to really care about where they were. There was no reason for them to continue the cultural mandate or the creation mandate, right? Because you're not going to be here for two years. No big deal. Not the four generations that Jeremiah promised. So Jeremiah's having to send them this letter. And so when he says, build houses, let me just say, this is, this is not just about being missional. What he's saying to them is, get comfortable. You're going to be here a while. You're going to need to build houses because you're going to need somewhere to live. You're going to need to plant crops because you're going to need something to eat. In fact, continue the creation mandate. Be fruitful, multiply. And don't you dare decrease. How many of you have made this statement or thought this? I really don't know if I should bring a child into this world. I don't want more children I have just because of all the bad, all the suffering, all the... Who would bring a, who would bring a child into this world? And what does he say? Bring them into the world of exile. Continue in the very thing I told you because my promises hold. Nothing ultimately has changed between me and you. You're still my people. 
and do the thing that I called you to do. So don't you dare decrease thinking that by decreasing you will make a difference. No, only by increasing will you evidence the glory of the Lord. Now they would have known a story from another period of time in exile in Egypt. Now remember what happened in Egypt when they increased. What happened? God blessed them and they increased and Pharaoh was excited about that. You remember? He thought, man, this is great. You guys are awesome. I should probably let you build your own house of worship. Now what happened in that story? No, actually what happens is Pharaoh says, oh, but no, I am God. And I will determine who and what you are. You are my creation now. I am your recreator. Now, take less and make more. And I will destroy you. But what's interesting is what happened to Pharaoh, who was not the recreator and not the creator God. God's promise is held, but check this out. That was something that occurred over 400 years. And they were called to be faithful, even still, as Pharaoh cracked the whip harder and harder. It was a different Pharaoh at this point. But still, that didn't change anything. And so they already have a story that should embolden them and teach them, hey, we're going into exile, but God's hand has not been stayed. He remains sovereign, which is why he says, I sent you into exile. I sent Nebuchadnezzar to retrieve you. I am sovereign. So therefore, in your exile, build houses, continue the work that I told you to do, And he even goes so far, and this is one of the few times in the Old Testament, in fact, I think it's the only time in the Old Testament that he says, pray for your enemies. Now, in the New Testament, it says it as well. But this, he says, pray for the welfare of the city, because as the city goes, so you go. Now, here's the thing about that. They had the same circumstance in the promised land, right? Where they had... They had supposedly biblical rulers. They had supposedly, supposedly biblical people over them. And as the promised land went, so they went, right? So as the promised land descended into, remember from Habakkuk, what he saw, there's blood being shed in the streets. The poor are being mistreated. The work that we are doing is unjust and unrighteous. He was actually pointing to their work ethic. And saying, it is utterly wicked. We have forsaken the Sabbath. Same thing gets said in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah makes it clear. Do not forsake the Sabbath. And what do they do? I don't need a day off. I need a day to increase. But you fool. Your life will be required of you this very night. Increase in what? Right? And so... Not only does he say that, but if you go to Jeremiah 22, you'll see that it's also their work ethic had become such that they mistreated the poor and they'd become unrighteous in their dealings with one another. They had unjust measures and weights. All kind of crazy stuff was going on. So as the city went in the promised land, so they went. As it descended into its own exile, so they did too. And so the the same thing holds. As you are now in Babylon, You are called to the same obedience. If you mistreat the poor in Babylon, guess what? It'll be even harder on you. If you 
deal falsely? You think Nebuchadnezzar is going to be kinder to you than me? You cheat Nebuchadnezzar and tell me what happens. Any of you familiar with the book of Daniel, you remember, he even said he had this dream and he called everybody together and he said, listen, for the dummies who cannot interpret this, I'm going to kill every single one of them. All of them. I, I'm not even, I, so there's, it wasn't like he was saying, I'm going to kill only the ones who don't know. If you don't know, I'm going to kill them all. And they didn't know. And if you remember, Daniel was smart enough to go to somebody and say, hey, 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 before the guillotine falls, can I take a shot at this? And Daniel does, and Nebuchadnezzar relents, if you remember. And so what's being said here is that we are, they are called to recognize where they are, who they are, and whose they are, Right? So they need to have a very clear understanding so that they can continue to glorify the Lord their God. Now, is that a necessary truth for us here today? You better believe it is. How many of you think, don't, don't raise your hands because I don't want to get in a fight about this, rhetorical question this time. How many of you think this is a Christian nation? The United States of America, that is, given that's the soil on which I stand. How many of you think it was ever ever a Christian nation, a nation that was designed to glorify Christ and God alone. Now, I'm not saying that there weren't Christian principles in there somewhere, and I'm not saying that the government isn't, praise God, Presbyterian, because that's worked out well. I'm not saying that they didn't have some, some, some folks in there who signed the document that didn't sign it with that intent, but where exactly was it that that was always the case as we slaughtered the natives and then brought people on boats over because we really didn't want to work that hard in the fields and mistreated them for a while? Where, where exactly is this halcyon Christian day? And now we definitely are a long way from home in this regard as the administration has issued an edict about bathrooms and public schools and showers and all this stuff. has got us all whipped into a frenzy. It's just the natural progression. I don't know where you think you are. And I also wonder sometimes if we're, we're rightly reading uh, what the true solution is. Right? I mean, it, it, this has kind of begun to dawn on me as I was at the Cobb Pregnancy Services banquet and again, I'm late to the party on some stuff. You guys just have to forgive me. But, but as I'm sitting there, I'm going, wait, wait, wait. Why in the world is the decision on when human life begins a partisan issue? Where did that happen? Was I asleep for 100 years or something? Like, why, why is this a partisan issue? And what even dawned on me even more is that there is no political party that is in favor of this issue, by the way. There is no unity whatsoever among those who make any profession of Christ. In fact, what they're hearing on the political side, and this isn't a political rant, by the way, actually. I know it sounds like it, but I'm just pointing out that politics is not the answer. The king who runs this country is ultimately not going to be the answer because what he, he or she does, king or queen, will only last for a period of time. We still gotta have Christ come back, right? I mean, it's still the promise in the end. That's the, the, the hope and the plan that is ultimately going to work. 
and we got to remember that the United States of America is not the promised land and the most important country on the planet, by the way. But going back to this other issue, what they have discovered as they have approached um, folks on the conservative side of the aisle is here's what they're being told now. Hey, would you guys just let this go? You're killing us. You're killing, you're killing the, the, the conservative cause, actually, with all this talk about human life. Would you just let it go because the battle is lost? That's what they're being told. Now, we may say, wait a minute now. I know of candidates who are, and they're going to fight for this. It's to charge the light brigade, if you know what that is. Now, let me tell you of a place where actually things are changing. It's at the level of Cobb Pregnancy Services who saw over 134 men and women come to Christ last year. Amen? And, all, and 30 so far, 35 or so, so far, you want to see something change. It must change at the heart level because law and governance was never intended to make this into the promised land. Never. And it's foolish for us. We waste our time and our energy when we forget that the primary calling for God's people for whom, according to Hebrews 13, says, we have no lasting city here. No lasting city. We await the city that is to come at the return of Christ. So let us go outside to meet him where he suffered meaning we're he redeemed, meaning we are called into the darkness to redeem. You want to transform the issues that are before you. Befriend, love, call to be redeemed. Recognize that the human who disagrees with you about when life begins or what gender is or any of these things, they are orphans without a family. Welcome them into the family. Let them, their heart be changed. Genesis 1 and 2 means nothing to this world. Nothing. You're not going to win that argument. It has already gone into insanity. Hasn't it? I mean, it's astonishing. Some of my friends that, that are on the orphan side, some of the stuff they say, I'm like, I don't even, how would you conclude that? How, how is it that you don't think life begins when something can feel pain and yet you think a three-year-old can determine what their gender is. How does that work? Even as a former radical anti-theist, I can't make the logic work. And that's not just them that are using bad logic. It's us too. We have forgotten Genesis 1 and 2. We have forgotten all the power that we have in the gospel. We don't trust that that's the best way. We just don't. Which is why we don't evangelize. Now, I know that that's a tough word, and let me make something clear. Evangelism is not bullhorn, passing out, it's not only that. Some people are actually good at that. It's weird. I get it. God will not be mocked. But it's all about how we love and how we pray and how we're being oriented instead of, instead of going to war against other orphans with methods and means that will only bring down destruction. Would that we would be the church as she was designed to be a priesthood of all believers as, as Peter calls us, right? So what's happening here is Jeremiah is saying, get ready for the long haul. This is going to hurt. But don't forget who and whose and what you are called to, which is the cultural mandate. Listen to what Hugh Welchel, 
<coughs> says about this. He wrote a book called How Then we, Should We Work? Rediscovering the Biblical Doctrine of Work. In Jeremiah's letter to the Babylonian exiles, he is reminding them of the cultural or creation mandate. He tells them to build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. In other words, be fruitful and multiply. Fill this part of the world to which God has brought them with his images. Second, he tells them to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. This is what taking dominion should look like for exiles. If you want dominion here, it begins on your knees. It begins in prayer, which actually is powerful. We just, again, we're like, ah, psh. prayer ain't going to do nothing to target me boycotting them is, I tell you that. I'm, I made a phone call. <laughs> they know my opinion. Did you see what the leader of Target came out and said? He said, I don't care. And if you haven't noticed, the government is completely and utterly behind him. So you <laughs> throw, throw, throw whatever stones you want. Now, am I saying that it is not strange that this whole thing, yes. Is it maddening? Yes. Yes, it's maddening. I have a daughter. I have a son. I am far more concerned with what they think about who they are and whose they are than them being afraid of everything. Remember, our calling as parents is to help our children become ambassadors of reconciliation, not prepare a safer place in which to live. You can't. You're not going to make this world safer because all that will do is tell your children that they don't need God. Do you understand that? That whenever we hit prosperity and safety and security, if you've read the Old Testament at all, every single time that happens, they drift from the Lord their God. And guess what we do too? So, our calling is to help our children understand who and whose they are, the creator-creature distinction, so that they can work and rest and live in this world in such a way that will bring people into the kingdom, for which, actually, all of this becomes a fantastic opportunity because it is so opposite. Do you not get this? We live in a historical moment in which the gospel is going to be able to shine brightest. It will no longer be entangled. Praise God. Most of what we have exported from American Christianity has been entangled and bad. Let me just run down a couple of options. Prosperity gospel, where did it originate? Here. How much damage is it doing in Africa and Asia and other places? It is utterly entangled and destructive, and we came up with it. Celebrity pastors. Who came up with that one? We did. Praise God. No, not really. We came up with all of the anxious seed and, all, and the altar call and the manipulation, which generations, some of you sitting here, hate. You hate all that stuff we came up with, which is why you don't trust us. There's a generation sitting in our midst that's going... Man, you guys are whack. I think that's a terminology that the kids use these days. 
maybe a generation ago. So in order for them to trust us, they need to see in us the truth of the gospel. It ain't hard to figure out if they read their Bibles at all and look at how we live. The inconsistency comes roaring into view and we lose all credibility. So have a credible witness, regardless of where you are, by how you continue to cling to that which God has given us as his promises and how we're designed. Do we do that in our own Herculean strength? No. We do that in the power of Jesus Christ who redeems us, who makes it possible for us to walk in freedom and newness of life in a fallen world, right? We do that because we've been given the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at all the resourcing we've been given. God's word, which I know is a tangled mess for some of you, but it's worth the effort, trust me. He gives us the spirit, which I know is a weird concept for some of you, but it's good. And we as God's people need each other. He's given us each other, his word, his spirit, and the finished work of Christ to do all that needs to be done in a far country. Remember where you are. This ain't home. It's not. And that's Bible. So are you willing to live and work in such a way to seek the welfare of the place and government where the Lord has sovereignly placed you, even if it is oppressive and against your beliefs? Because that's where you are. Now you may say, well, hang on now. Daniel refused to do a few things. Let's review that. Daniel chapter six. If you don't know it by heart, that's okay. I don't either. Um, But you know it because it is Daniel in the lion's den, right? It's the old Sunday school story. And what I find awesome about that is in all the pictures, how old is Daniel when he hits the lion's den in the pictures? He's still a strapping young buck, but in the story, he's probably about 60 or 65 years old because he's risen to prominence now under the third or fourth king. He's been in exile. He will be a lifer in exile. He will be one who sees all 70 years. He never goes home, by the way. And so he's risen to such prominence that this king is about to make him basically the president of the whole land because with Daniel at the helm, he knew he would lose nothing. Do you hear that? Daniel worked so hard and in such a way that the king would know and receive every blessing that was due him given his ordinances. Huh. In fact, when the satraps got angry because Daniel was being lifted up to this position of power, they said, we got to do something to take him down. Now, you got to understand, he'd been in exile since he was probably about 15 or 16. So he's got about 40 plus years logged in exile. That's a lot of work history. And he worked in a bunch of different positions for different kings. And so they set about, surely there's something we can find to destroy his credibility so that the king wouldn't give him this position. And you know what their conclusion was? We can find nothing. We can find nothing to say against this man, but I tell you what we can do. We can can make it to where he can't worship and that'll get him in trouble. So they go to the king, if you remember, and get him to sign this edict that, hey, you can't worship your own God for 30 days. Right, it's the it's the it's the um, thirty day the whole thirty non pray challenge. Right, it's, I don't know if you've heard of it. Maybe many of you are doing it and you just don't know it. Um, I'm sorry. So he tells him you can't pray for thirty days. That's all. You ain't got to pray to a foreign god. You just can't pray to your god. Right. So the king signs it, not thinking about okay, whatever. Signs it, 
And when Daniel heard, this is scripture, when Daniel heard, he went home and he opened the windows and he turned toward Jerusalem and he prayed immediately. And guess what? The satraps knew. They knew what time to find him because he'd been doing it three times a day for 40 plus years. And they caught him and they dragged him before the king. And they said, now, king, you can't go against law. Now you go going against uh, Persian law and we got a problem. You know how the king responded? He said, good, I hate that joker. Throw him to the lions. No, says the king stayed up all night long wrestling and hoping that he could find a way to save Daniel because he loved him. And he couldn't. And so he had to put him in the lion's den. And when they rolled the stone in, he put the signet ring on there. He said to Daniel, I pray that your God will deliver you. And he fasted all that night while Daniel was in the lion's den. Didn't sleep a wink. Now, how many, how many, how many, uh, Pastors, especially that one that was in Iran, did Obama stay up all night and pray for him? He didn't. And that's not a knock on Obama. That just tells you that this is where we are. But in this case, wakes up the next morning, King rushes, and Daniel comes out. And what we don't tell in the Sunday school part of the story, and we never depict it, is he has all of the people who had um, said anything bad about Daniel, them, their wives, and their children, their entire families thrown to the lions, and before their bodies could hit the ground, the lions had destroyed their, all of their bones. That's hard to depict that in Sunday school. I get it. <laughs> but my point is this. What did, Daniel, what did Daniel do to wind up in exile? He was born in Israel. He lived in Judah. He didn't do anything wrong. Now, why didn't Daniel complain all of that time and raise all kind of cane and say, Lord, I've been good. I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. No, what did he do? He read the letter from Jeremiah and he said, okay, this is what we got to do. And he did it. And the Lord gave him favor again and again and again. Why doesn't he leave when he has the opportunity? When Cyrus gives the edict, he could have gone back. You know why he doesn't? Because he had so much influence in Babylon that he was concerned that there needed to be someone behind who could continue to help facilitate the work that was going on in Judah. He stayed in exile and died there. What an example. See, we don't really mean that oftentimes. We say, hey, go be a Daniel. (laughs) We don't mean that. But that's what it means. To be a man of the Lord, to do this. So Daniel is a prime example of what we just read in Jeremiah 29, 1 through 7. Let's look at Jeremiah 29, 8 and 9 quickly. Here it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. This is a reference back to what I mentioned before, Jeremiah 28, where Hananiah says, hey, it's only gonna be two years. God had already proclaimed in Jeremiah 25, now it's going to be 70. And how often, now we have a passage in the New Testament that is an analog to this. What, do we, what kind of preachers do we gather? The ones who will soothe our itching ears. I don't even blame the celebrity guys. I don't, I don't blame them one iota. In fact, um, Jim Baker already dealt with this in a book called I Was Wrong. He doesn't blame them either. He, he takes the hit himself, but Like he said, the reality is when you got people lifting you up all the time and making you think you're great and you never open a door and you never pay for a meal because you are soothing their itching ears, it is you who will be destroyed. 
And so we, we still do this. We still, and in fact, this happens a lot of times. I have people come to me and they don't like the answer that I give and they go find somebody who gives them the one they like. And that's okay. I get it. I don't blame you. I sometimes do it too. But let's be scriptural. Let's, be, let's not rise up and, and give unbiblical solutions for things. Let us not seem to suggest that we're going we're going to turn this country around with our Herculean effort. Anything more than the gospel itself will not turn this country around. And it's also insulting to suggest that it ever was great for everyone. It's been great for some at different periods, but not everyone. And the gospel says, no, the new heavens and the new earth will be great for every tongue, tribe, and nation. True representative. Walter Brueggemann says this about this passage. He says, the concern of the text is not a theoretical one, but the nature of prophecy itself. The concern is quite practical concerning the seduction of religious fantasy. The threat of the Jews is that they will be talked out of the reality of exile, invited to deny the real place where they must live out their faith. See, if the Jews only think they're going to be there two years, there could be all kind of just them building up just hatred toward the Babylonians and back toward themselves. How's that going to go, by the way? And it could be that they don't contribute to anything. And they actually, at the end of that two years, when they're not set free, that an insurrection starts, if you know anything about the book of Maccabees. And it could be that they try to fight their way back home. Is that the way to go? A king with a sword in his fist? Isn't that what Jesus came to do? No, for them to believe a religious fantasy is only going to cause them to hurt and, and possibly be destroyed instead of leaning upon the promises of God that have already been spoken. Same is true for you and I. Let's turn to the, uh, and so are you ever tempted to believe cheap grace and easy believism to avoid the pain of sanctification? I've said this before, we're horrible arbiters of our own sanctification. But again and again, that's all I hear people want to do. No, 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 no. You, 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 pastor, you don't get to talk about my sanctification. That's private. Oh, really? Huh. All of God's things ought to be public. All of God's things ought to be in community. Right? There's no private in that. You don't get to say but you are to check it against scripture, anything I say. Be a good Berean. Let's turn back to the text, 29, 10 through 14. <clears throat> it contains the verse that we misquote so often. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed from Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now what this is saying here is that the Lord is saying, though you have gone into exile, it is not the end of the story. You are entering into 70 years of judgment, really sanctification that's going to shape you more into my people. When that 70 years is up, you're going to come looking for me. You're going to seek me. This is going to teach you something, something that we got to remember they had ignored. Remember Isaiah 58. 
that their religious activity, they were wanting to hear from the Lord, right? Remember this from last week? They were like, hey, why, why do we fast? Why are we beating people up and you don't hear from us? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I don't want you beating people up. Striking with a wicked fist and mistreating folks, not welcoming them into the Sabbath and mistreating the poor. Go and treat the poor in such a way that I'll, find, I'll come. I'll hear you at last. They knew and rejected. If you don't believe me, read Jeremiah 22. That's where it says specifically that one of the reasons they're going into exile is the way that they treated other people in their business dealings, specifically the poor. And so he's telling them, and again, remember, they don't deserve to come back, by the way, right? So this is gra it's grace, number one, that he's writing them a letter to try to help them get through. Two, it's grace because he's fulfilling his promises as soon as he does. Seventy years is fairly short given the other 400 they spent. And notice that it's grace for him to say, no, my plan for my people, not some individual but my plan for my people is to bring them back to me, which is actually him speaking back to Deuteronomy 31 through 10. I encourage you to read that passage. It's a beautiful passage of God's grace in the Old Testament. And he's saying, I'm going to restore you. But listen, the generation he's talking to, will they see it? No. So let me give you the equivalency of us quoting Jeremiah 29, 11 today. To the person who so longs for a spouse, who says, I know the Lord knows the plans he has for me to prosper me. The equivalency here would be that that person has been told, you are never going to get married and the only spouse you will have is Jesus at the return. That would be the equivalency. To us as a church, as we would quote Jeremiah 29, 11, as we long for a building, the equivalency here would be for the Lord to say, you will always tabernacle and set up and not have enough chairs. You will always have to do this thing that just you seem to grow weary in, but recognize the fact that you get to do it is grace and is evidence that I'm coming back for you. Right? It is not a verse that we can actually use. And I know kind of what you're thinking. You're thinking, so are you saying that God doesn't love me and care about me? Yes, he does, but this ain't the verse for that. It's just not. But this verse is an even greater comfort than that because it is God's everlasting and eternal promise that he would redeem his people and not let them sink into the fires of hell. There would always be a remnant and he would always be with them. Listen to what John Calvin says about this. He says, it was a proof of obedience when they acknowledged that they were chastised by God's hand and thus became willing, willingly submissive to the end of the 70 years. But their hope, was to remain in suspense in order that they might so pass their time as to bear their exile in such a way as to please God. For there was a sure hope of return, provided they look forward according to God's will to the end of the 70 years. It's very important for us to remember that and remember where we are. So what are the plans that God has for us? What are they? Gotta be at least one Christian in this crowd just by averages. What are the plans? What's that? To be with his people. He has guaranteed that when the time comes and in the, in the, in the true fullness of time that Jesus would return and all of us would be gathered unto him to dwell with him in the new heavens, new earth, that is the plan that he has for us. 
And that should form our days. That is the eternal Sabbath rest. That is why the Sabbath should actually orient our days and not everything else. We should become people of the Sabbath, people of that hope, people of that plan. Because that is what he has for us and he has secured it in Christ. Here's the good news. Your obedience is not determinative of that, but your obedience is determinative of your appreciation of it between the now and the not yet. So what do we learn from Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14? One, the vocational calling of God's people continues even in exile and is a blessing. You have no, we have no excuse not to do well what we are gifted and crafted by God to do and where he has placed us. Two, false prophets will tempt us with comfort and ease instead of sanctification for holiness. Three, God's faithfulness to fulfill his redemptive promises are why we live the way we live. Let me repeat that last one. God's, God's faithfulness to fulfill his redemptive promises are why we live the way we live. That should be what drives us to evidence our faith through our obedience. Amen? All right, so let me close with this passage because again, the New Testament is not a whole different deal. It's just not. It's, 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 this world is not our home. To quote the old Baptist hymn, I'm just passing through. Um, this ain't it. That we, this is not our lasting city. Now, that doesn't mean we can't, that we shouldn't work for its welfare, because as it goes, so we go on a day-to-day basis, which I know you may circle back around and say, oh, man, the trap is laid. Let's talk bathrooms, bro. No, I don't want to talk bathrooms. Not right now. It's not it. So listen to what 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 58 says, and let this be an encouragement to us. We're actually going to cut the last song because we need to get everything cleaned up so we can go on to the picnic. Um, and so uh, I'm sorry to the band who put all that effort into whatever my God ordains is right. Just know that happens to still be true. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll read this, pray for us, and I'll step down and give the benediction. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Christ Jesus. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, you hearing these words? Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Did you hear that? Think through those words. Take time this week to meditate on what each one of those words would look like in your life. What does it mean for you to be immovable? What does it mean for you to be abounding in the work of the Lord? What does it mean to be steadfast where you are where the Lord has sovereignly placed you? And if you, hey, listen, this is a dialogue. Let's talk about this. I know some of you are in difficult circumstances and it's not the same for everyone. And you've got to think some things through. There are some places where some of you need divine dissent. You need to do what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, which was say, no, I'm not going to worship a foreign god. I'm not going to do that. And if you kill us, you kill us, whatever. But see, you've got to be willing to die to say that. And if you think we're not getting there at some point, you're, you're not paying attention.
And I'm not, I'm not, this is not cynicism, this is realism. And so we need a, a sure promise so that we labor not in vain. And that sure promise is the resurrection and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.